you need to do animal feeding studies really depends upon how much you know about that product. So how much do you know about the ingredients, their nutritional quality? How much do you know about the recipe, the other ingredients and how they're put together? How much do you know about the effect of the making process? that will have an effect. And then what do you really want that product to do? What benefits do you want to provide um, to the pet? And then you can decide what level of animal feeding studies are appropriate for that product. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Leading pet food manufacturers, renderers, and ingredient suppliers recognize that Kemen is assurance. Every day, they deliver specialized expertise, innovative products, and unrivaled support through the pet food and rendering value chain. From oxidation control and food safety to palatability and nutrition, all the way through a suite of tailored services that allow you to feel supported from start to finish to ensure you're getting the most from Kemen ingredients. That's why every step of the way, Kemen Nutrisurance is your partner in pet food and rendering ingredients. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where I seek to discuss current research and how I may apply to innovation in the pet and nutrition industries. I'm your host, Julia Pezzali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kathy Gross about the topic of animal feeding studies in the pet food industry and also in academia. Uh, thank you and welcome, Dr. Kathy Gross, for accepting your invitation and being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Before we learn a little bit more with you about animal feeding studies in the industry and from your experience uh, that you had in this topic, do you mind sharing with our audience your background and uh, what is uh, what is your know, stage of your life you are today? Absolutely. Um, well, I am a animal nutritionist. I did my bachelor's degree in animal bioscience at Penn State University. I did a bachelor, uh, a master's degree in uh, animal nutrition at Virginia Tech and received my PhD in animal nutrition at Kansas State University. I'm also uh, a professional animal scientist and board certified in animal nutrition uh, through the American College of Animal Scientists and a member of the American Academy of Veterinary Nutritionists. I, I spent um, over 30 years in the pet food industry working for Hills Pet Nutrition uh, in the research and development organization, uh, leading projects in research and product development, 
in clinical studies and animal feeding studies, uh, innovation, and lots of other uh, fun things that I did. And I'm currently doing uh, private consulting and also adjunct professor at Kansas State University. Awesome. Uh, I'm sure I'm excited and our audience to, to uh, hear about your experience with animal feeding studies and also provide some guidance on, uh, on how those studies can be beneficial from those small companies that are starting and then they may need some validation on these products. So to start, uh, let's say there's a small pet food company listening to us. They may just hire a nutritionist and they're going to pay Sometimes are expensive for them. They have those formulas and they say, oh, it's meeting the AFCO recommendations. Why do they need to consider doing a feeding study? And why maybe sometimes only meeting those recommendations may not necessarily mean the diet's actually complete and balanced? Yeah, it's really my opinion that all pet foods should be fed to pets before they're marketed. And the extent to which you need to do animal feeding studies really depends upon how much you know about that product. So how much do you know about the ingredients, their nutritional quality? How much do you know about the recipe, the other ingredients and how they're put together? How much do you know about the effect of the making process? that will have an effect. And then what do you really want that product to do? What benefits do you want to provide um, to the pet? And then you can decide what level of animal feeding studies are appropriate for that product. Um, you, You can look at a pet food and analyze its nutritional content, and that tells you some about the product but it doesn't tell you, is the pet gonna eat it? The pet, it may not be very tasty. It may be great nutritionally, but it may not be very tasty. You don't know how that product is gonna perform in the digestive system. So you don't know, is it gonna create a stool quality that's unacceptable for the pet? Um, You also can't tell by just looking at a nutritional profile are those nutrients bioavailable? Is the pet going to get the benefit of those nutrients because they're digestible? So animal feeding studies can help you answer all of those questions. Yeah, no, all great points. And when many people think about feeding, feeding studies, they they go to AFCO. So can you just explain uh, what is AFCO? And they do have some sections in their book about animal feeding studies and what are those? Yeah, AFCO is the Association of American Feed Control Officials. And basically, in the U.S., um, pet foods are regulated through the federal level and also at the state level. And the state regulators have this organization, and they use this organization to establish kind of safe and uh, basic uh, requirements for marketing of pet foods. And so what they have done, and actually this happened in the early 1990s, there was a canine nutrition expert committee that was put together and a feline nutrition expert committee that was put together. 
And they looked at all the available literature out there, all the knowledge about what are the basic requirements nutritionally for pets. And they put those together as the AFCO uh, nutritional uh, guidelines and recommendations. And so pet foods that are marketed need to meet those basic uh, nutritional requirements. And in order to claim your product is complete and balanced, you need to substantiate that claim um, one of three ways. And AFCO provides three options for pet food makers to substantiate nutritional adequacy claims. And the first one is by meeting the nutritional guidelines. So your product, you analyze it and, uh, in the lab, and then you compare it to the required nutrients um, that AFCO has set. And again, these are minimal nutritional requirements just to say this product is generally good um, for the pet at whatever particular life stage. There's also a second way, which is to do an animal feeding study. Um, and it's what's called the AFCO protocol. And there are protocols uh, for feeding studies for dogs and cats. And they, um, depending upon the uh, life stage, there's a separate protocol for puppies, for kittens, for adult dogs, adult cats, um, and also a protocol for pregnant and lactating uh, pets and the foods that would be marketed for those. And then a third way is kind of a combination of the two. Um, if you have a product that's uh, been tested through an AFCO protocol and you have a revision to that formulation, you can document through laboratory analysis that that product is quite similar to one that you've already tested. And, and can substantiate your nutritional adequacy claims that way. And in those uh, AFCO protocols, protocol studies, what are the major outcomes, uh, if you remember, that they look, uh, look after? Yeah, the AFCO studies really are designed to identify some pretty major issues that a pet food would have. Um, so they use relatively small numbers of pets um, depending upon whether it's a growth protocol or an adult protocol, it might be anywhere from eight to 10 um, animals in the study. Uh, relatively short studies, puppy kitten studies are typically around 10 weeks long. Adult maintenance studies can are six months. They look at pretty basic things too. They look at, at food intake and body weight and a few blood parameters just to pick up any sort of egregious kind of issues. Unfortunately, they're not protocols that are going to tell you if there's a, uh, a, a nutritional issue that takes a long time to develop. Those protocols aren't sufficient for that. The protocols wouldn't be sufficient to pick up nutritional imbalances probably um, and those protocols use very small numbers of pets and so given the wide diversity of pets and their situations it they really don't cover every possible scenario that would a pet might 
uh, have out in the real world that would eat that food. Yeah, great point about the diversity. We saw we, you have so many dog breeds and they for sure have differences in their metabolism. Uh, on that note, when you do those aquafitting studies, we usually use um, laboratory animals. Um, is there any difference maybe if you're going to feed a diet in laboratory animals compared to client-owned dogs in the real world, may we see differences on that? Yeah, there's a big difference between feeding animals in a laboratory setting and also in home. In a, in a laboratory set setting or a kennel setting, you control a lot of parameters. And so you can really focus in and identify some differences that may be masked in an in-home setting. So those types of studies in a, in a kennel setting are really good um, when you're looking for um, differences that are, you know, deep nutritional differences. You want to have a very controlled environment, minimize the variability, um, so that you can actually find differences that exist. In an in-home setting, there's lots of different factors that come into play. Um, in the kennel setting, you can precisely feed the pets a certain amount every day. In an in-home setting, you're relying on uh, a pet parent to do the feeding, and they may be skilled at that. They may have some interruptions in that feeding schedule. And, you know, there's lots of different factors. Pets can go outside. Uh, they can get into other foods. So there's a lot of things that a uh, external uh, or an in-home study brings in terms of variability. But that's the real world. And so if a pet food, you know, if you're looking for a benefit, say a, a weight management benefit, running a study in an in-home situation with lots of different variables and factors, and that food is successful in helping pets lose weight, then it's a very robust food and um, it's likely to be very effective. Um, and so it's, there's definite benefits to running uh, in-home studies. Yes, I think there is no right or wrong. There is pros and cons in different methodologies, and for sure we can learn from both of them. Ideally, it would be perfect if you could do both kind of studies, but for sure the financial part is something that we have to consider, of course, when you are uh, trying to validate a product, what is the best approach, what are target, what are our goals. Certain types of studies are really well-suited to kind of a controlled environment, a kennel environment. So taste studies are, are really great to do in a kennel environment. You're, a, a typical taste study is two bowls, one food versus another food. And you have animals that are trained to make those selections. We know that they have a discerning palate and they can make those selections um, of one food versus another. Digestibility studies are another one that's really great to do in a kennel situation because you can collect, you have, you can uh, collect the data in a very controlled way. So you can get accurate food intakes, you can collect your stool, you can run those analyses and do the calculations and get 
a very uh, good estimate of the apparent digestibility of, of the pet food. Yeah, and those digestibility studies, they are very, I'll say, popular in the pet food industry as a, um, I'll say, applied kind of research or validation of the product. Everyone wants to see how the product is going to affect the fecal quality and also the apparent total tract digestibility of the macronutrients. Um, But those studies, they don't tell us much about the metabolism or specific claims, uh, such as, I don't know, skin and cold health and um, maybe even gut health. So if a company wants to have those specific claims uh, in their bag, do they have to substantiate based on animal studies or depending on the nutritional composition, they can substantiate some claims? Right. So claims um, that are used on pet foods all have to be substantiated. That's kind of a basic legal standard. So what you need to do to substantiate claims really depends on the type of claim it is. So if you have a product claim that's purely about nutrition, so, you know, my product contains calcium, basically as long as your product is documented in some way of containing calcium, then you can do that. So if it's by analysis or by the ingredient that's added, it's a very simple type of claim. But if you add to that claim, my product contains calcium and the, and the product uh, is making bones stronger, So my product contains calcium and the product makes bones stronger, then you need to demonstrate in some way that your product strengthens bones. And you use the word stronger, so it's stronger than what? So you have to have some baseline to establish. So that kind of a claim requires a lot more thought and substantiation and testing that would go into it. Um, And, you know, you have to watch out for claims that really tread over into the drug area because foods, although they have wonderful benefits, um, the FDA and uh, the state regulators really differentiate foods from drugs. Foods have great benefits to the body, but they don't have drugs in them and they don't have drug effects. And so you need to watch out for those type of claims and avoid uh, using those drug, drug-like words like prevent something or treat something, which is what drugs do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. And you see sometimes uh, many companies trying to treat with a food, but then it's not a food. It's going to be a drug and other classification. And I know AFCO and FDA, they have very good resources online uh, to kind of understand they have some basic schemes and questions so you can check if is this a food, is this a drug, and then can help you understand of claims you can make and which ones you can. So for those listening who are are interested, there is uh, those resources online available and they are, uh, they are free as well. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about drugs or those things, we get sometimes, uh, let's say a company want to introduce a new ingredient or a novel ingredient. Is there any 
best way to evaluate uh, how this ingredient may perform in the diet or if you feed to dogs and cats? Is there, what is the best way to kind of evaluate a new ingredient? Yeah, new ingredients are, are actually really fun to evaluate in, in my uh, in my life. Um, I look at an ingredient and I first start with its nutritional content. As a nutritionist, I'm interested, what does this ingredient potentially bring nutritionally? And I look for those positive things it brings. But I also look for things that might be a watch out. Um, if, if some ingredients are very high in, say, sodium, and I'm not looking to have a lot of sodium in a particular food, I'd, I'd be cognizant of that as I was looking to use that new ingredient. So I want to look for the positive nutritional things, also the things that I that would be a watch out for them. And that you can get from a laboratory analysis. As a new ingredient, I'd be very interested to know, is it tasty to pets? And so there may be some op opportunities to uh, formulate this ingredient at different levels into, say, a prototype pet food and look at its taste characteristics um, when it's formulated. You can also do some aroma studies. You can also do some characterizations of the ingredient itself from, say, an aroma or a flavor perspective. And then you would also want to look at how, how do pets tolerate this ingredient. So not only do they like it, but is there a maximum level where that ingredient might start to cause some digestive disturbances. And, and we know that there are ingredients when they're fed at high levels can cause some digestive upsets. And so there's, you know, limits on uh, how much you can use. So you would do maybe some digestibility studies with that ingredients, maybe at various levels, you would look at stool studies. And then if that ingredient was intended to have some uh, benefit to the pet, you may want to do studies where you look at the actual health benefits. So by measuring, you know, its effect on skin health or coat quality, or you might be looking at how it impacts the microbiome. And, and so there would be a lot of different studies that you could do with that ingredient to demonstrate or show um, its, its benefit to the pet. Yeah, for sure. There are many routes or different areas to explore when you're investigating new ingredients. And those studies can be done in uh, with universities, also with uh, specific outside kennels, so, or even in-home studies with client-owned dogs. So there are different ways, again, to approach these questions and answer them. That's right. Uh, one thing I was interested that you mentioned was sodium, right? So when you think about minerals and more on the electrolyte side, uh, I think when you think about cats, that's something very important, right? And is that something that we don't have in a, uh, a specific guidelines officially to determine a specific level? So can you talk a little bit what is the importance of that for cats and how we need to pay attention and measure those if you're launching a new product? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, any pet food maker wants to make sure their pet food you know, is healthy for pets and doesn't cause any health issues. 
And for cats, we know that cats can develop urinary issues. And in, in most cases, um, these urinary issues may be related to development of stones uh, in the urinary bladder or crystals that irritate the bladder and in some cases cause blockages. Those stones or crystals um, that are in the urine and urinary bladder actually come from the body and the body is excreting those. But those minerals can come through the diet into metabolism and then end up in the urinary bladder. So for cats, having the right balance of minerals so you have enough for healthy bones, healthy teeth, healthy, you know, organ function, but not excesses that end up being waste and go into the urinary bladder are really important. And so there are several types of urinary stones that can be formed in cats, um, but the primary uh, mineral constituents are things like magnesium, uh, minerals like calcium, phosphorus and calcium and phosphorus balance is really important the amount of magnesium is very important and not having excesses of those excreted into the bladder the other piece to urinary health in cats is related to urinary ph so the ph of the urine um, because we're talking about minerals coming out of solution and coalescing into a crystal or a stone, urinary pH plays a role in that chemistry. And food affects body chemistry and affects the acid-base balance in the body, which then is reflected in the acid-base or pH of the urine. And so one of the things that uh, a pet food maker can do is to check the urinary pH that results when their food is fed. And so you can look at a urinary pH and there are published values for the, the healthy range for cats, as well as what's a healthy range for the minerals that would be in the urine um, of that cat when it's fed the food. So that's one thing that's really key when you look at developing a new cat food is to understand the impact of mineral levels and the impact of the food on the uh, pH of the urine. Yeah, and there are some formulas that are available in the literature that you can try to based on the composition of the diet, try to calculate the acid-base excess, at least as a guideline to make sure you're on the right track. Uh, and those formulas are very, at least, uh, I always get very shocked when I try to plug the numbers there. If you change very small amount of a specific, you know, electrolyte, you can really change acid-base balance. So a small amount, small changes of ingredients, maybe you're, you're put ingredient A and then you replace with, with B and then you think, oh, they're just, you know, major sources of a specific 
macronutrient, but they also bring a lot of other nutrients on board that you need to pay attention. And that's why, as you said, it's very important to look the entire nutritional composition of, of those ingredients. Right, right. And and like you said, a small differences just um, can make a big difference in the urinary pH. And minerals come from a lot of different ingredients that are in the recipe. So minerals can come with the meats that are there. Minerals can come from uh, the plant products that are there. And minerals can come from supplement minerals that are added. They all come with varying um, degrees of availability to the cat too. Um, And so you can do the best you can to predict what might be happening in the cat's body but actually until you have a lot of experience with the type of ingredients that you're working with you really don't know what's going to happen as those ingredients are metabolized and what the output is into the urine yeah and one thing that also always grabbed my attention is that sometimes you know i spend hours and hours developing that product doing that formulation as balanced as you can and then there's this new I would say uh, very popular in the pet food industry all the stoppers and let's add this let's add this but if it's completely unbalanced you're depending how much you're adding you're unbalancing everything that is in that diet so uh, it's very tricky that part and I think people have to pay more attention in recommending toppers and mixing because you're unbalancing things that are not supposed to be that way yeah yeah for sure uh, so we talk a little bit about those AFCO studies and then there is digestibility studies maybe some safety studies uh, where should uh, pet food companies start if they are launching product product, uh, product what do you think is the best way to you know evaluate it yeah I think you know really best practice is to sit back and and look at what do you know about that product? So are you using a lot of new ingredients that you haven't used before? Um, You know, is this a brand new recipe? And I think you really have to start at the basics. So very good analysis of your ingredients, you know, lab analysis of the complete product, and then think about what are the most important things that we need to know? We want to know that the pets are going to eat it. We want to know that it's going to create a stool quality and, a, and you know, it, it's, it's uh, effective for digestion. So a digestibility study. For cats, you know, it should be some sort of study that looks at the urine, the urine pH, um, and maybe mineral levels in, in the urine. And then you need to decide, where do I go from there? Do I need to do an AFCO study because I want to demonstrate general nutritional adequacy? Or would I like to do an AFCO study plus learn additional things and so add some additional um, measures on that, like skin and coat quality or looking at um, deeper uh, levels of uh, things in the blood, for example, or or something like that, or demonstrating a 
a, a, a body weight benefit. So either weight loss or, or weight maintenance or, or something like that. So start at the basics. You want a pet to eat it. You want uh, the nutrition to be available. And then you want to know that the product is uh, good for the, the benefit that you're trying to provide. And, and thinking about the benefit that the product's gonna provide, you need to think about who is this product really intended for? Is it ten, intended for kind of a, a special segment of pets? And so if you're planning to do feeding study, you should focus and try and do those studies with that target group of pets. So if your product is designed for highly active pets, then you probably would want to do your studies to demonstrate that the product is great for those highly active pets or pets that maybe have, uh, you know, some uh, stool uh on and off stool issues, you want to demonstrate that your product has a benefit for that. And so you would want to target what your product is for and develop the right feeding study um, to, to demonstrate that. Yeah, and I think one challenge that we have in the pet food industry compared to livestock is that always the major outcome is health and longevity and how do we target those? How do we measure those? It's always going to be a challenge. And I think it's going to be, a, you know, a lot of research over the years. Can we find biomarkers? What can you really look into uh, to kind of really understand? And for those who are listening and are not in the pet food industry or even in research setting, it's very hard to do very long-term studies. They are very expensive. They are very also it's not easy to find that many animals in that controlled environment they're going to be on the diet or even client on. It's, it's very challenging. Even when the grain-free diets, DCM kind of, um, kind of scandal came up many years ago, you saw everyone online, oh, why you don't do just a long-term study? Well, who is going to pay? Who is going to, how we're going to all work together to do this? So it's much more complicated. So when the, um, as a pet owner, I, I also want to, you know, feed a diet that is going to, make, you know, my pets live as long as they can, but it's really hard to prove with empirical data how can a specific diet, dietary intervention can affect that. So a lot of challenge in the upcoming years, I would say, to try to find some biomarkers or different strategies to, to target those outcomes. Yeah, for sure. The, the other thing that I just thought about related to a best practice is as pet food companies and makers are looking to develop their feeding guidelines on their product. Um, one of the things that you know you need to know when developing feeding guidelines is the calorie content of the product. And the calorie content, you can calculate that. Um, and for some pet foods, the, the calculation using you know standard calorie values for carbohydrates, fats, and proteins works pretty well. In other pet foods, it's not a very good estimate. So if you have a really highly digestible food, um, the calculations actually underestimate that. If you have a fiber-enhanced food um, or you have 
new um, and different ingredients that haven't been commonly used in pet food, that calculation um, may be pretty far off. And so you need to then do a digestibility study where you're calculating the metabolizable energy, digestible energy content of the product in order then to establish how many calories is in a kilogram of the product and calories per cup. And then you can figure out and develop your recommendations for the various weights of pets. So that's a, an important thing as well. And um, it's not talked about a lot in terms of, you know, is the calorie content um, that's on the label really representative of what the what's in the product. So that would be something that uh, a pet food company should really consider is do I need to um, do a study where I understand the calorie content of my product so I can develop the best feeding recommendations um, for it. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I think we are a little bit far off on the recommendations in the bag and with the very most of the diets I have in the market they have a very high digestibility. They're very they're highly digestible so those modify at water factors they are not very good at estimating. Usually they underestimate and then those equations from the NRC they overestimate. So we end up overfeeding and yeah, it's always tricky. I always say those recommendations are just a starting point. You have, you know, to weigh your dog, you have to at least try to understand and uh, measure body weight over time a little bit to understand actually how much your dog must eat for that specific food. And um, uh, that's all sometimes important to always have an animal scientist or veterinarian to, to do some nutritional specific consult for your pet. So you have that calculation of food intake uh, precise to make sure they are not overeating and gaining body weight. Right, right. And keep in mind that the AFCO guidelines for nutritional content are based upon a particular calorie amount. And so if your calorie content is a little off from what it actually is, then that means your nutrition balance to those calories is off. And so if if a pet food is formulated to the bare minimum of the AFCO minimum values for nutrients, but your real calorie content is higher, you actually are going to end up with a product that may not deliver the nutrients that you were intending to if a pet owner is feeding, you know, less than the recommended amount because the product is actually higher in calories than is on the label. So it gets to be a very complicated thing. And then you add in that pet owners often, you know, put toppers on and they're diluting out those nutrients. So the calorie content balanced to the nutrient content and knowing that you have that in the right balance is, is key. And when the AFCO uh, nutritional guidelines were developed, the thought process that went into it was based upon commonly used pet food ingredients at the time where they understood in general that the products were 
80 to 85 percent digestible you know and nowadays there are a whole different array of ingredients that people use and so you know trying to make sure that you understand your ingredients and how they relate to those AFCO uh, guidelines is, is key for uh, a pet food maker. Yeah, and we can go back even for to the requirements that we don't know, actually don't have much empirical data to support many of the requirements. So those recommendations are overestimated just to try to make sure they're not we're underfeeding specific amount of nutrients, but that can be for sure another podcast talk about requirements and how can we try to understand them better. Right. It's time for our famous three. ICC Animal Nutrition, the Brazilian company with 30 years of history and present in more than 70 different countries, providing natural, sustainable, and technological solutions for animal nutrition health and well-being in a safe and scientific way, adding value in food production and helping to feed the world. Thank you very much, Dr. Kathy Rose, for joining us today. And I'd like to ask you some final questions before we end this podcast. Um, the first one, you been in the industry for many years. You are very successful there in many different roles. You work with a lot of different people, different groups. So one thing is, what have you seen over the over your career that uh, successful people they have in common? Or, or even on your team, on, when you're bringing someone in, why you're looking on someone that you think, okay, this person is going to succeed, is going to do well in this job? Yeah, I think, you know, a person that, especially in the research and development side um, or, or any pet food company, you need to be curious about what other people in the company do um, and, and try and understand how they look at their job, what their job is, what role they play in developing the products. Because as a team, you're working together and having that appreciation of you know, someone else's point of view, having a, an appreciation and understanding of where they see things. So kind of, you know, walking in their shoes or under a better understanding always makes for a much better collaborative group. And, you know, in my experience, it's a team that functions well and has mutual respect for each other's uh, roles and contributions is really successful and can do a lot more than an individual. So I look for a person and, and in my career, you know, trying to understand as much as I could about other parts of the business that I wasn't in um, really was helpful and um, allows you to um, add value um, across uh, projects that you're working on. Yeah, every single piece of, you know, uh, a company, they are important. They're there for a reason. So they need to support each other. A company can not only survive from research and development and not only for marketing and, you know, all those pieces are there for a reason. And if they, as I said, work together, they find, you know, a solution more easily as well and understand each other. Right, right. Uh, my last question is, 
have done many animal studies or feeding studies over the years. What is your favorite part of an uh, animal feeding trial? What do you look, you know, get more excited about or enjoy the most when, uh, when conducting those? Yeah, so um, I kind of am a nerd in that I like it all, but um, <laughs> designing studies are really fun, I think, because you're thinking about what can I do? What's the art of the possible? How can I do this? And, you know, conducting the study is good. But getting the data back and looking at those results and, you know, what I predicted happened, did that happen? Um, you know, what did I learn from this? Typically studies answer some questions, but you can't design a single study to answer every question that you want. So studies typically lead to more studies and more questions. So... I, I kind of like the whole process of designing and conducting and then uh, learning and starting that process over again. Yeah, it's always very exciting. And I, for me, I think designing said is the, one of the best parts, but one of the worst because I want to add all variables. I want to learn everything, but okay, I don't I don't have that much money. So <laughs> what is really important? So that's the the frustration part for me about like, I want to learn everything, but I, I can't. It's one answer at a time. And that's the best way to approach usually. I, I had a opportunity to conduct a study with um, lions in the zoo one time. Oh. And um, I had a friend that she was uh, an experimental psychologist and was interested in how feeding behaviors and feeding process affected um, the behavior of the lions in the zoo. So stereotypic behaviors like pacing and, and you know, anticipation of foods. And so we designed a study to, like, change up their their feeding um, protocols and uh, we needed to um, figure out how we were going to uh, decide which pile of lion feces belonged to which lion and so there was a lot of thought into how we mark their foods so that we could then get markers in their stool and differentiate lion one from lion two and everything so uh like you said there was a lot of uh, thought and uh a lot of excitement at the beginning of a study when you're trying to figure out all the different parameters and how do you how do you measure all those things <laughs> yeah yeah well that sounds a very interesting study and fun i i hope one day my career can work with some wild animals as well that will be uh you know a very must thing to do hopefully i can get there one day <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Kathy Gross, for joining us. I really enjoy your talk. I'm sure our audience as well. And I hope you come back again to our podcast to talk about uh, any other topic that you, you want to. So thank you very much. You're very welcome and my pleasure. Thank you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. 
With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.